0: This is Theology Gals, Episode 10, Covenant Theology with R.
1: Scott Clark.
2: This podcast is a member of the Bible Thumping Wingnut Network.
1: All right, welcome everybody to another podcast episode with Semper Reformanda Radio. Hi, welcome
0: to Theology Gals.
3: Welcome everyone to the Logical Belief Ministries
1: podcast. Well, welcome to School of Biblical Harmonetics. Welcome everybody to Grappling with Theology. What is going on guys? Shine his lights coming at you. Well, welcome to Slick Answers. Good evening and welcome to the Conversations from the port. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Bible Thumping Wingnut Podcast.
2: <laughs> the
1: Bible Thumping Wingnut Network: ten podcasts,
2: one network. Check them out: biblethumpingwingnet.com.
0: Hi, welcome to Theology Gals. We're a podcast by women for women, and we're on the Bible Thumping Wingnet Network. I'm Colleen Sharp, and my co-host is Ashley Glassick. And we're very excited about today's episode, aren't we, Ashley? Yep. This is one of our favorite guests. Yes. And some people, if you're if you're in our group or follow our page, you might might already know that our Scott Clark is joining us. Today, or or on Twitter, because he did mention it on okay. Twitter. Um, I think he mentioned something um, publicly before we did, so that was kind of cool. Yeah, and because we we recorded the interview ahead of time, so yeah. so we're but we're very 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 excited about this episode on covenant theology because we get so many questions about it, and I think I think that there's a lot of misunderstandings. Right. About some of the things, yeah, you
3: know, yeah, I agree. Well, before we get to the and, interview, um, yeah. how are you? How are you doing? What's What's going on with you this week?
0: Oh, I'm I'm okay. I'm okay. Um, nothing Nothing too exciting. Yeah. My kids have been hilarious this week, so they've been saying all kinds of funny <laughs> things. So <laughs> it's been lots of laughing. Yeah. Four Four sons
2: yeah from ages
0: 14 to 20 and keep me busy oh we we bought a car this week because oh. our we will now have three of our children who will drive so we oh we bought a car and one of my kids got a job so i think it's i think he's going to be using that one there's now going to be all kinds of i think we have four cars now <laughs> so that's it's it's just kind of go 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 at my house always Always something going on. How about you? So you have a 40 weekend this weekend, right? It's kind of nice to get time off. Yeah, I do.
3: And last weekend, I think I told you that I was going to a a conference for, not a conference, a retreat for um, the SoCal Presbytery. So like all the churches um, in our presbytery do this women's retreat every year um, up in Idlewild, California. Um, and it was just really, really fun. Um, you just meet so many interesting people and you hear stories about how their church got started, or you know, I one lady was telling you a really funny story about how she found out about Calvinism and she thought it was of the devil and you know you just you just meet really interesting people. So, yeah, I had a really great time last weekend. Um, that was the first time I went to a you know, a, a event with the Presbytery. So
0: yeah, that's, that sounds like a lot. That's really mm-hmm. neat that they do that. They do that every year.
3: Yeah. Every year they've done it for the last 35 years. So all the churches in the OPC in Southern California and in Arizona, even though it's called the Southern California Presbytery meet yeah. um, in Idaho every year. So, you know, you just meet so many interesting women and yeah, it's very. very they fun. Have a, do they have speakers? Yeah, they have speakers they, that speak. They had a biblical counselor speak about friendship, and it was just, you know, I was thinking like how some of those, those speeches go, at you know mega churches on friendship, but it was so like biblical, you know, and it was yeah. really refreshing, um, especially to hear the, I've- the viewpoint
0: of a biblical counselor. So. Yeah, that's, that's really great. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm glad that you were able to go. It sounds, sounds really wonderful. Yeah. Um, I don't think it, either of the OPCs we attended had something like that, but I'm not sure. That sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, I think we're going to go ahead and get to our guests because it is a pretty long interview and, a lot of you ladies who have had questions about covenant theology, I'll go ahead and tell you ahead of time, yes, we talk about infant baptism, because I know that that was something. And that's not all we talk about, because I don't think you can mm-hmm. fully understand paedo-baptism without understanding covenant theology. And so I think I think this will be helpful and There will be a lot of resources on the at BibleThumpingWingNut.com. Click Theology Gals. Click on this episode. There'll be a lot of resources for further study because you can't really get, you know, you can't do a thorough study of covenant theology in an hour. But I think this will give kind of a good introduction to everything. So, okay, we'll be right back with Dr. R. Scott Clark.
2: Looking for that perfect track for your next evangelism outreach? Look no further. At tractplanet.com. we have solid, biblical tracks that are a breeze to hand out. They are beautifully designed and are the highest quality tracks available. With over 80 different designs in stock and literally hundreds more available by custom order, we're sure to have just the right one for you. You can get any of our items printed with your church or ministry information or have us design a brand new tract just for you. We are committed to the solid biblical message of law to the proud and grace to the humble. Each tract is firm on the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the necessity of repentance and faith in salvation. Come check us out at tractplanet.com and make sure you use coupon code BTWN at checkout for 10% off your entire order. That's tractplanet.com, coupon code BTWN.
0: Hi, and we are back. This is episode 10 of Theology Gals on Covenant Theology, and we have Dr. R. Scott Clark with us, who is a professor at Westminster Seminary in California, and um, he's going to be talking with us about Covenant Theology. For any of you who have asked me about Covenant Theology, I've probably sent you some resources from him. Um, The... He has the Heidelcast, and I've probably sent you I Will Be a God to You and Your Children, which I will link in the episode because that's a great series on covenant theology. We're, we're very grateful that you've decided to join us tonight on this topic because this is something that we get so many questions about, covenant theology and infant baptism. And I know that won't hit it in, you know, be able to do an extensive um, discussion of it, but at least maybe get a little bit, get our gals to grasp a little bit. Can can you start with just kind of telling us what is covenant theology?
1: Well, we think, that is, uh, Reformed people think that covenant theology is biblical theology. So we think it comes from Scripture. We think that it, it's in the beginning of Scripture, and it's all throughout Scripture, and it's behind Scripture, if you will. So it it. We think that uh, it's sort of the warp and woof. One of our theologians, B.B. Warfield, who taught at Princeton in the late 19th century and the early 20th century, uh, said that, um, and I'm paraphrasing here, that covenant theology is so essential to Reformed theology that to change the covenant theology is to change Reformed theology. So, in a sense, Reformed theology is covenant theology. And, and vice versa. Now, that being said, there have been other versions of covenant theology throughout the ages, and they haven't always been identical to Reformed covenant theology. But uh, you know, for us, we think of it, uh, for example, uh, behind history, from all eternity, classically, our Reformed uh, theologians said that the Father and the Son had made a covenant from all eternity, that the Father would give a people to the Son— and the Son volunteered to be a substitute uh, for and a Savior for those people. We call that the covenant of redemption between the Father and the Son, and implicitly the Holy Spirit. And then we talk about a covenant of works that uh, into which God entered voluntarily, uh, freely, and some of our writers even have said graciously, but it's still a, a covenant of works, a covenant of law, a covenant of nature. It's been described different ways, just different ways of talking about the same thing. And this is before the fall between God and Adam, in which God said, in effect, I will give you eternal life, eternal blessedness and fellowship with me, on condition that you uh, obey this law. And here's the law. In effect, love me with all your faculties and your neighbor as yourself. But the particular expression of that law was, you may eat from uh, any of the trees of the knowledge of uh, any of the trees of the garden, except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. And uh, the Belgian Confession calls that the commandment of life. So if he'd kept that commandment, he would have entered into life. Uh, the Westminster Confession, chapter 7, calls it a covenant of works. Had he obeyed that covenant, he would have, enter- he would have entered into eternal blessedness. And then uh, we talk about a third covenant, which and both of these are related to the covenant of redemption. The, in the covenant of redemption, before time, the son said, I will obey. So it was a covenant of works for him. But he said, I will obey for them. So it was a covenant of grace for us. And that covenant of grace comes to expression very early in Scripture when God comes to us after the fall and says, What did you do? You know, and uh, what? You know, who told you you were naked? And uh, enters into a, a covenant with all of us in Adam, with all of his people, all, all the elect. Uh, and he says, um, The the seed of the uh, woman will crush the serpent, and the serpent will strike his heel, and that gets worked out through the whole history of salvation. It gets expressed explicitly as a covenant to Noah in Genesis chapter 6, and uh, again, uh, God makes covenants of grace with Abraham in Genesis 12, 15, and 17, and it reflects different uh, promises, different types, different shadows, and... uh, and that gets restated and rearticulated in different ways through the history of redemption under Moses, under David, and finally fulfilled by Jesus uh, as he comes to be the seed that was promised, uh, the head crusher that was promised. So it really covers all of redemptive history. And, um, and, we, and so we use these three covenants to, to, uh, to describe really the whole history of salvation.
3: So the the covenant of grace, it, you're saying it, it starts in Genesis 3, but w- within the covenant of grace, there's a bunch of smaller covenants that are a part of the covenant. Um, could you maybe, like, I, I've heard people kind of contrast, like, the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant and, like, why it's important to understand that contrast. How do those work within the covenant of grace, I guess, is my question.
1: Well, that's a big question, and it's an important one, uh, and I'll do my best. It's, it's complicated only because uh, where Noah, it's just a covenant of grace, and Abraham is just a covenant of grace. It's never a covenant of works. With Moses, it gets a little more complicated because God entered into a national covenant. That's one of the things that distinguishes Moses from Abraham and Noah and uh, and then the mosaic covenant lasts for 1500 years and strictly speaking according to paul in second corinthians 3 and the writer to the hebrews in chapters 7 8 9 and 10 this is the old covenant so that's important uh, sometimes when we talk about the old testament uh, we mean everything that happened before jesus came or everything that uh, happens sort of before uh, Matthew. So, from Genesis to Malachi, we we talk about that as the Old Testament. Okay, fair enough. We have to need some comprehensive term to describe, you know, the the first uh, thirty nine books of the of the Bible. But strictly speaking, when Paul talks about the Old Covenant, now not the Old Testament, but the Old Covenant, and when Hebrews does, it's really referring to a specific period in redemptive history, and that is roughly fifteen hundred. B.C., so the 16th century B.C., through the death of Christ. So it covers Moses and David and the prophets and the exile and the intertestamental period and the life of Christ, in a way, and, and finally up through into his death when he fulfills it. And in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, tells us this. The contrast, and this I think is very important, and it's a point that many people miss because they just assume what Jeremiah 31 must say. Right, they know there's a, a contrast there in Jeremiah 31 uh, between new and old, and they, they just assume that it, it must be between everything that happened in redemptive history uh, prior to the um, the incarnation, right? But it, it isn't. I'm trying to get it in front of me here. Uh, it says, "Behold, right, Jeremiah 31:31, 31, 31, the days are coming," declares Yahweh, "when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel." and with the house of Judah. Now look at verse 32. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares Yahweh. Verse 33. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares Yahweh. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now, where does he get that language? I will be their God, and they shall be my people. We'll come back to that. Verse 34, And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of these to the greatest, declares Yahweh. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. But the key here that people often miss, right, It will not be like the covenant in verse 32 that I made with their fathers when I led them out of Ur of the Chaldees. Is that what it says? No, it does not say when I led them out of Ur of the Chaldees. It says when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 makes an explicit contrast between the New Covenant, and the covenant with national Israel. That's the Old Covenant. So that's important. Uh, and and yet, the Mosaic Covenant was also an administration of the Covenant of Grace. So we have to say both things. It's simultaneously the Mosaic Covenant, the Old Covenant, the Fading Covenant, the covenant ultimately that's broken. Hebrews says it's inferior, right? Uh, Paul says it's fading, all of those things. And yet, simultaneously, it's also an administration of the covenant of grace, the promise that God made to Abraham. It continued to be administered outwardly under national Israel for a 1,500-year period. So, both things are true simultaneously. So, there are continuities with Abraham and discontinuities with Abraham. And the new covenant picks up in verse 33— Right, Jeremiah thirty-one, thirty-three. 33 uh, it picks up, as it were, the Abrahamic promise. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And that's the language of Genesis 17. Right, So that's the pattern for the covenant of grace, is the Abrahamic covenant. So there's unity and continuity, but also discontinuity. And that's what makes this sometimes somewhat complicated. Uh, but if we, were, if we simply remember that there are fundamentally two kinds of covenants. There's a covenant of works, do this and live, or the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die, and a covenant of grace, which could be expressed a variety of ways, but the most basic way of expressing it is, I will be a God to you and to your children after you. Or I will be your God, you will be my people. That's the Abrahamic covenant. And you see that re-expressed, re-articulated throughout Scripture after Abraham, right? 12 and 15 uh, are, are... about a land and a people, right? And Hebrews tells us that Abraham was ultimately, ultimately looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. You know, if he was looking for an earthly city, he could have had that. That's not what he was looking for. That's why he was so anxious, right, uh, to be buried in a certain place. And he was uh, it was a testimony that he was looking forward to heaven. And, uh, and, he, and of course, he has a people. Uh, that's the whole point of Romans. The, the last part of Romans is to say that um, his... Uh, that the elect, that God promised to Abraham, are being called and they are being brought to faith, Jew and Gentile. And, and in the New Covenant, Gentiles are added into this covenant of of grace. In fact, Abraham himself was a Gentile when he first believed. right? He, uh, so Abraham was the father, Paul says in Romans 4, of all who believe, uh, Gentiles who are uncircumcised and Jews who are uh, circumcised. So there's continuity and discontinuity and two covenants, covenants of works, covenant of grace
0: um we have a lot of dispensational listeners or i I would even maybe say people who are coming out of dispensationalism um that's kind that was my background and uh, ashley and i were talking about a dispensationalist just said to me the other day not in not in our group someplace else and you've written about this where he called covenant theology replacement theology
1: yeah, I get this uh, question fairly frequently. And there's an essay on the Heidel blog, heidelblog.net, H-E-I-D-E-L-B-L-O-G.net. And and uh, the the and in the essay, I, I tried to make this point. I understand why dispensationalists say this, uh, but what they're really doing is convicting us of not being dispensationalists. And that's true. We're not dispensationalists. But... It's not true that we have a replacement theology. It's not like God was saving Jews, and now in the New Covenant, he's no longer saving Jews. If so if we said that God was saving Jews, but he's not saving Jews anymore, uh, now he's replaced them with Gentiles, then we would be guilty of a, quote-unquote, replacement theology. But we're not saying that. We've never said that. What we do say is that God has always had an elect, and Paul says this, no one has ever been elect merely by being Jewish. Right. And, and uh, Paul says in, in Romans 2.28, a Jew is one who is a Jew inwardly, right? Not, uh, so it's fine to be circumcised or to be baptized and be initiated into the visible covenant community. But what matters is, do you believe? And if you believe, it's because you're elect. So it, that's always been the case. And Paul goes on to say, well, look, God's still saving Jews. I'm a Jew. I believe. And so that means, you know, that, that's evidence that he's still saving Jews. Uh, but it, no one has ever been saved simply because they're Jewish. Lots of Jewish people haven't believed. Lots of Jewish people were uh, apparently reprobated. right? So, Jacob have I loved, Romans 9. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated, before either of them had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose and election might stand. Well, that's the Word of God. So, if, if your system doesn't account for that, then you need to change your system and so i i understand that people want to have a future for national israel and i think that's problematic but certainly there's a future for all elect people jew and gentile and so jews are going to be saved and some reformed theologians have said that god is going to have a great ingathering of you know, a great conversion of jews to christianity in the future and that's entirely possible i you know i'm agnostic about that. I'm just not sure that's what Paul means to say, but it's a possible interpretation. It's a historic interpretation. It's a reasonable interpretation. And so I don't argue about it with folks, uh, because it may well be true. I just am not personally convinced yet. But certainly all of God's elect will be saved, both Jew and Gentile. And what he's done is he's added Gentiles into the mix. So that's not a replacement theology. That's an expansion theology. And and the more fundamental point, in a way, is to say that, in fact, the, the, the center of Scripture—and I think this is really, really important, and I hope the listener will get this—the center of Scripture has never been a national people. And I can tell you this with authority, because Hebrews 2 says this explicitly. Jesus is the owner, right? He's the heir. He's the son in God's house. Moses, Hebrews says— was a worker in God's house. Dispensationalism, in whatever form, whether it's, you know, the original unmodified, or whether it's the modified, you know, Ryrie, Schaefer sort of dispensationalism, um, or whether it's, I mean, I think it's less true of progressive dispensationalism, but certainly of the first two versions of dispensationalism, Israel, national Israel, is really the center of Scripture. And that's a huge mistake, because the Scriptures themselves, our Lord himself says in Luke 24, John chapter 8, that he is the promised one, that scripture uh, was about him. Um, Peter says this, that the prophets were searching scripture, trying to see in what way it was pointing to Christ. And, And Peter says, now we know, we've seen it. It's been revealed to us. It's been explained to us, and we're explaining it to you. So Christ is the center And so the the decision that dispensationalists have to make is, what is the Bible really about? Is it about national Israel and God's future plan to reestablish a national people for a thousand years, rebuild a a temple? Now get this. Think about Hebrews. Rebuild a temple in which you're going to have Levitical priests or priests of some kind, I don't really care, offering memorial sacrifices While Jesus sits on the throne, I just think that's extraordinary in light of the book of Hebrews, which repeatedly, two or three times, says, once for all, Jesus is the once for all sacrifice. He finished all of the sacrifices. The the whole argument of the book of Hebrews is, why would you go back, you Christian Jews, why would you go back to types and shadows and a daily offering, you know, a weekly offering, Uh, when Jesus, the Melchizedekian priest, has made the once-for-all offering to end all offerings. And so dispensationalism, it seems to me, really fundamentally contradicts the book of Hebrews and leads us back to the types and shadows and away from the fulfillment in Christ. And by the way, this is not spiritualizing, as sometimes the dispensationalists say. This is following what Scripture actually says about itself. Matthew 2 says that Jesus went down to Egypt and and came back up. And out of Egypt have I called my son. Jesus is the son. He is the Israel of God. And uh, he is the center of Scripture. He was the one that was promised right from the very beginning. The seed of the woman, right, will crush the head of the serpent. The serpent shall strike his heel. That's the fundamental promise that gets worked out through redemptive history and finally fulfilled, right? As you and I are recording this, this is uh, what some people call Holy Week. And we're, we're heading towards... Um, right, uh, heading towards Good Friday, Monday, Thursday, Commandment Thursday, uh, Good Friday, and and uh, and then uh, I call Silent Saturday that no one ever talks about, and then when Jesus was dead and in the tomb, and then Sunday morning, right, the ladies went and the tomb was empty, and that's the center of Scripture. Is that very thing? That's not a byproduct. That's not a a, a good thing you know but we're really looking forward to the rebuilding of the temple no jesus is the temple destroy this temple and in 3 days i will raise it up again he doesn't care about a future temple so anyway that so i i, I appreciate my dispensational brothers and sisters for their passion for the word of god and and uh i wish uh, i wish they would take some time and actually read what we say rather than listening to what other dispensationalists say about Reformed theology. Because in my experience, and this really starts from the bottom, whether we're talking about laity or even going you know, up the ranks, as it were, to scholars, I just don't see a lot of evidence that dispensationalists have taken the time to actually learn historic Reformed theology and then learn to represent it fairly.
0: Yeah, my, my dad, who's probably listening right now when this is released, is actually um, a Jewish convert and a dispensationalist. So, Dad, see, I told you.
1: <laughs> um, well, I mean, pray, you know, Dad, praise God. We are thrilled about that. This is an answer to prayer, right? We pray for the conversion of, of all of God's elect, Jew and Gentile. And uh, Paul says, what advantage is there to being a Jew? And he says, much right? There's are the promises. There's are the covenants. God administered his plan in redemptive history for 2,000 years in some sense, beginning with Abraham, who's the first Jew, right? He's a Gentile, what he's called, and he's a, a Jew after he's circumcised, and then specially through the nation of Israel for 1,500 years. And, and uh, Paul says the outward administration of the covenant of grace is no small thing. That's a big deal, and, and he actually says to the Gentiles in Romans, listen, you Gentiles, don't you start wagging your finger at the Jews, you know, how children will, will sometimes say, my kids used to say, you know, Nana, Nana, Boo-Boo, right? He doesn't love you anymore. He loves me. And Paul basically says, don't you say that. Because God could, you know, just, just as he grafted in the Gentiles and turned his back, as it were, on national, national Israel, he could do the same to you. So, you know, you watch your tone, basically. He takes a sort of paternal... Uh, tone with with the uh, uh, Jewish and or with the Gentile Christians, warning them, you know, to be thankful, to be engrafted into the people of God. And so, one of the things I had to learn when I was coming out of dispensational circles was this, and this is Ephesians two: the dividing wall has been broken down. And my one of my big problems with dispensationalism is they still have a dividing wall; they still distinguish between Jew and Gentile in a way that Paul does not. In Christ, there is no Jew, there is no Gentile. There is no rebuilding of the temple. The only building of a temple that's going on now is the building of Christ's temple, right? the spiritual temple, the real temple, by the power of the Holy Spirit, by which you you and I and your dad, we're all bound together by the Spirit in Christ. We are the temple. And Peter says this explicitly, that we're being built together as a holy temple. And you know, Paul uses a you know, couple of different images. We're a body, we're a temple. Peter is explicit that, that he's building this, this spiritual temple by adding all of his elect, brick by brick, building this temple. So that's a beautiful thing. But we've also moved beyond the types and the shadows. And we don't want to go back to types and shadows, right? Sacrifices, ritual washings, monthly Sabbaths, not the weekly sabbath right? Colossians 2 is uh, talking about Sabbaths in the plural and new moons. That's a formula in the Hebrew scriptures talking about the Jewish uh, religious calendar. And we're done with that. But we still have the weekly Sabbath, the weekly resurrection day.
3: Yeah. So earlier you, you touched on, okay, we were talking about the Abrahamic covenant and how, in a way, it still continues. And um, I th- I think we we kind of want to talk about baptism because that's I mean that's where all of our questions come from. Like we just don't understand baptism, and for me personally, well, we
0: understand it.
3: <laughs> well, right, right. We we understand it, but uh, I mean I'm I'm actually really new to to covenant theology in the last two years, and one of the things that really helped me understand this was thinking about the visible and the invisible church, um, and understanding that. Um, And that was a concept I had never heard before. I mean, I grew up in a dispensational church and then was at a Calvinist church. And yet I still hadn't heard this, you know, visible and invisible church and that distinction. Um, And then when I started to learn about the Abrahamic covenant, uh, you know, all the pieces kind of fell together. Uh, Could you maybe explain that a a little better than (laughs) than I'm explaining that?
0: I would also add, you know, you, you've you talked about continuity, and I think that was right. something that was very helpful for me when I was studying it.
1: Yeah, the, there's always continuity and discontinuity. So the discontinuity is with the types and shadows. So anything that has to do with bloodshed, that's done. So there's no more holy war, right? Uh, and, and there's no more sacrifices. Circumcision is a fine thing to do, but it has no religious significance anymore. So people are free to do it or or not to do it. Um, hand washing has no religious circum, religious significance anymore. We're free, according to the Book of Acts, to eat anything we want. It's a it's a medical decision now. It's not a religious decision. So there's discontinuity with all the types and shadows, but there's continuity with the Abrahamic covenant. And Paul is explicit about this. Jesus is explicit. John eight fifty six. Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. And Paul builds this argument in Romans four three and four. On, on Really, on the back of Abraham, he is the father of all believers. And that's huge, right? And the, when I talk to people about baptism, the number one thing I have to do is try to convince them that they are Abraham's child. And if you get that, then baptism makes sense. If you don't get that, then baptism isn't going to really make any sense. And most of my evangelical friends who have a sort of baptistic orientation to Scripture— fundamentally think that Abraham is just like a, a pre-Moses, right? And my Baptist uh, uh, friends who are more theologically astute actually work at this, in a sense, to make Abraham into Moses. So to make a point, I sometimes say that you cannot do what people often want to do, and that is to put up a, a Moses mask on Abraham and hit him over the head and leave him in the alley, because that's what we do to Moses, right? Paul says Moses is temporary, he's fading, he's obsolete, so we're done with him. Everything that is distinctively mosaic is done. So the ceremonial laws are done, the civil laws are done, the only thing that survives is the moral law, and that's because it was given in creation, and it's not distinctively mosaic. So anything that's distinctively mosaic is done. All right, so that's, that is how we think about... Uh, the continuity and the discontinuity. And and so Abraham is the father of all who believe. So if you think of that, God made a promise, I will be a God to you and to your children. And all through the scriptures, he keeps repeating that, right? And it comes out in different ways. The prophets express it uh, slightly differently, but time and again, Isaiah and Joel uh, they, they and uh, uh, Jeremiah, they all pick up this language. I'll be a God to you and to your children after you, or I will be your God you will be my people, is how Jeremiah 31 picks it up. So th- that is this really basic construct. And every Jewish man understood that they were in a covenant with Yahweh. He'd made a covenant with them. And, and he'd made that covenant not only with them, but also with their children. And, he, and uh, it, was a, it was administered in households. And everyone in the household received the sign of admission to the visible covenant community. And that's important. Everybody in the household received the sign. The first person to receive the sign of circumcision, which is the the shadowy, right typological, illustrative, shadowy, forward-looking sign that was instituted under Abraham. The first uh, infant to receive the, the sign of inclusion into the visible covenant community was Ishmael. And yet we know Ishmael is not in the line of the promise. Nevertheless, he received the outward sign because everybody in the household received the sign. And then what do you see in the book of Acts? You see everybody in households receiving the sign. Now, we can't take our sort of American individualist view of salvation back into Scripture because it isn't there. In Scripture, salvation is administered to groups— now, you're not saved just by virtue of being a member of that group. Right? You're saved because you're elect, and God gracious you, graciously it brings you to new life and true faith. And you only receive Christ and his benefits by grace alone, through faith alone. But outwardly, it has to be administered. And the question is to whom? And it is to believers and to their children. And that pattern has never changed, Which is why, which is why Peter says in Acts 2.39, for the promise, and he says this to whom? right? Thousands of Jewish men, heads of households, gathered at Pentecost. And he says, for the promise. What promise? The Abrahamic promise. How do I know? Because he goes on to say, the promise is to you, you men who are here, and to your children. And, if I can paraphrase the last part of verse 39, to the Gentiles that God is calling to faith. And he's going to call to faith. And the, the the gospel is going to go to Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And Gentiles are going to be engrafted into the covenant people of God. So that's the pattern. And, and you see it all through. Once you see that Abraham is the paradigm, that Abraham is not Moses, right? That he is the paradigm for believers, both in the types and shadows and in the new covenant. Again, remember, in Romans uh, 4, Abraham is the father of all believers. And in Galatians 3 and 4, Paul says, listen, Moses is not the permanent thing. Abraham is the permanent thing. Right? God made a promise with Abraham 400 years before Moses. And Moses is temporary. Abraham is not. So you've got those two very clear examples. And then you have the whole uh, uh, example of, illustration of, in Galatians 4, the two mountains and the two women and that's to illustrate that Abraham is permanent and Moses is not you even see it in colossians uh, chapter 2 verses 11 and 12 when peter or when paul excuse me in colossians 2 wants to explain sanctification that is progressive conformity to christ putting off the old man putting on the new dying to sin living to christ when he wants to explain that he turns to, to three things—circumcision, the cross, and baptism. And it's so interesting. You, you We get an insight into Paul's mind, the way he looks at things, right? Because it's not the way we as American evangelicals tend to look at things. So he's talking to the Colossian Christians who are very wound up about sanctification, and they've gotten it turned around a little bit. They've turned it into all kinds of rules. They want to go back to types and shadows, and, and they're doing some weird things. And he's about to get after them about that very thing in a few verses, but in verse 11, Colossians 2, he says, In him, that is in Christ, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, right? By putting off the body of the flesh. And there he's he's not talking about, uh, well, I mean, metaphorically, he's talking about circumcision, but he's talking about spiritual circumcision. Having been united to Christ, right? you've put off the old man. Verse 12, having been... Buried, we say back home. Buried, they say other places. Having been buried with him in baptism. Now notice this. He starts with circumcision to explain, right, sanctification, which is dying to sin, living to Christ. What's the illustration of dying to sin? It's circumcision, which is a ritual death. If you just think about the act of circumcision, and I don't want to be too graphic about this, uh, but as a male, I, I, I think about this, right? I think about old man Abraham, 80 years old, and uh, no anesthesia, no medical equipment, just a flint rock, right? And how long do you think he sharpened that flint rock? What are you doing, Abraham? I'm sharpening that flint rock. Next day. What are you doing, Abraham? I'm sharpening that flint rock, right? Cuz he's going to have to perform surgery on himself. And and that this surgery is a ritual death, right? You you if somebody's performing this surgery on you, you are as helpless as you will ever be. Okay. And that's an image of sanctification and identity with Christ. Right. And so uh, he says, look, you you were circumcised. Excuse me. You were circumcised. You've been uh, uh, sin has been cut off from you, which was the imagery of of circumcision. Right. How? Having been buried with him in baptism. Now, notice that he goes from circumcision to baptism. Now, I'm not saying that his point here, as sometimes people have said, I'm not saying his point here is explicitly to teach that baptism replaces circumcision. But I am saying that in Paul's mind, to think of circumcision leads him to the cross which leads him to baptism. Right? By putting off the body of the flesh. How? By the circumcision of Christ. When was that? Well, that's the cross. He's not talking about Christ's infant circumcision. He's talking about the fact that Christ was cut off for us Right outside the city. He was made unclean. Our sins were imputed to him and, and so forth. He became sin for us, Paul says. So he thinks of circumcision. He thinks of the cross. And then in verse 12 he thinks of baptism, having been buried with him in baptism, in which also you were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him, that is Jesus, from the dead. So you know, there's a lot there to, to chew on. But the, the important point here is that we, if we think about baptism biblically, it's like circumcision. It's a sign and seal of outward admission to the visible covenant community. And those who are graciously brought to new life and true faith, they actually receive all that baptism and circumcision signify. Circumcision was a bloody sign and a seal looking forward to the new covenant, looking forward to the fulfillment of, uh, that Christ would provide on the cross, and baptism is a bloodless sign and seal that looks backward to what Christ accomplished for us in fulfillment of all those types and, and shadows and all those uh, prophecies and, and uh, promises.
3: Another another thing that, at least for me, helped me see this um, in Scripture was uh, making sense of the the verses in the New Testament where it talks about apostates in um, like, I, I think I'm thinking of Hebrews ten twenty nine specifically. Okay. I remember I was going through Hebrews just after I, you know, joined a Presbyterian church and I'm kind of wrestling with this and I was trying to make sense. Like how did, you know, the, the apostate verses just didn't make sense to me and in, in my framework, I, you know, how does someone, I gosh, I wish I could quote it directly. I don't have it in front of me, but it just didn't make sense until I started to understand, um, you know, baptism and people being part of the visible church but not a part of the invisible church. Um, anyways, just thought I'd comment on that. That was very helpful for me. Thank you for that explanation.
1: Well, you know the this this principle of the inward and outward, internal and external relationship to the visible covenant community. is very important. Everybody through the whole history of salvation has always had an external relationship to the visible covenant community. But believers have an internal relationship. So this internal, external, inward, outward, visible, invisible, these are all corollaries. And, and, And it's important to keep those in mind because when we lose those, we really lose an important set of categories to help us understand Scripture. And you see this for example, in Hebrews six, which is a parallel passage to the one you were describing in, in uh, he- Hebrews ten, in in Hebrews the pastor is warning the congregation about the possibility of receiving baptism, of even of coming to the Lord's table, and then falling away. And so he says in six four four, it is impossible. In the case of those who have once been enlightened, and we can debate about what that means, but possibly baptism, that's that's one way to take that. Not that they were automatically regenerated, but but this is a metaphorical, a figurative way of talking about baptism. Who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted, verse 5, the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. Verse 6, then it, here is where it starts to get complicated. And then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Which is the same kind of language we see in chapter 10, where the, the pastor the writer warns about people trampling the blood of Christ underfoot. Right, So it's the same kind of language. Well, again, this is all covenantal language. This is all language from the Hebrew Scriptures. This is the language that comes from Abraham. It's the language uh, that comes from the, the, the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant. So this whole business of making covenants, ratifying covenants, cutting covenants. And so when you cut a covenant in the ancient Near Eastern world, there was bloodshed. And the basic structure of a legal covenant was this, right? Uh, I, I'm entering into a covenant uh, with you, and and uh, you will do this, and I will do that, and we will kill an animal, and uh, will we'll and you see this in um, uh, in uh, Genesis 15, right? Uh, and we'll uh, we'll go between the pieces, and we'll say an oath, something like this: May it be to me as it is to these animals, if I break this covenant. Now we don't do this when we buy a car, or when we when we uh, you know sign a mortgage but you do take oaths when you get married when you buy a car when you buy a house you say may you come and take away my house if I fail to make the mortgage payment uh, may the repo man come and take my car right if I fail to, to make the car payment uh, and um, in California you 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 know may you take half of my property if I fail to keep my end of the of the marriage covenant right and so there are legal aspects to all these Covenants, And we don't seal them with the shedding of blood, uh, but we still do similar kinds of of things. There are sanctions and there are promises. Well, that's the background to all this. People have entered into the visible covenant community. They've tasted figuratively, again, of the the heavenly gift, the powers of the age to come, and, and they've fallen away. They've been external members of the visible covenant community. And this, you know, being an external member is not a small thing. It's a big deal. You've participated in really serious spiritual realities, even though ultimately you have not believed and you have apostatized, you've fallen away. And so you are, in this way, uh, a, a covenant breaker. You haven't, uh, you have, in a sense, you haven't kept covenant in as much as you haven't actually believed. And you haven't actually trusted in uh, the, the, uh, the Christ of the covenant Right, he who uh, promised, and he whose blood was shed. After all, ultimately, it is not we, right, who walk between the pieces. It's God in Genesis 15 who walked between the pieces, and he took the oath upon himself, and he suffered all of the harm of our covenant breaking. So it's a covenant of grace for us. It's a covenant of works for Christ. He took on uh, the the uh, curse for us for our covenant breaking, and you see that uh, some of that same imagery reflected. In in Hebrews, but the key here is the internal and the external.
0: So um, so Baptists, so they they claim to hold to covenant theology, um, but it's not reformed covenant theology because they don't include their children in the covenant. So how I, I know this can be a question we're going to get, but how how do they explain that based on this? covenant theology system, how do they explain? And I do want to uh, mention one thing. One thing that hit me years ago is I realized Baptists are acting in some ways like their children are part of the covenant when they teach them the catechism and they pray, teach them to pray and they do all of these things. Um, but how how, how do they make sense of this and not, and not bring their children into the covenant?
1: Well, you know, in my experience, uh, particular Baptists, uh, you know, there's a range of beliefs and practices among them, so that's important. Uh, so they're not you know, they're not absolutely uniform. Uh, some particular Baptists I've known have re- regarded their children as, to use the language of Jonathan Edwards, vipers in diapers. So they're regarded as unregenerate until. They give evidence of regeneration, at which time then they are baptized and entered into the visible covenant community. Other particular Baptists sort of raise their children more the way we would, and that is they treat them as members of the covenant community. They catechize them, they pray for them, and and they talk to them as if they were Christians— Uh, except that they don't put the sign of admission on them into the visible covenant community. And sometimes I've talked to some particular Baptists who give a very similar explanation to the history of redemption that I give, and then others, and I think uh, perhaps somewhat more consistently, for example, with the 1689 Confession, Chapter 7, say that, in fact, there is no covenant of grace until the New Covenant. So we'll deal with that, because that's the clearest uh, sort of contrast between Reformed Covenant Theology, and particular Baptist Covenant Theology. To talk, as they do, in Chapter 7 of their confession, as uh, if—and it's interesting, the whole—where, say, Westminster Chapter 7 is about the Covenant of Works, as distinct from the Covenant of Grace, uh, the uh, 1689 sort of compresses it all. And and, and those who hold that strictly will tell you that, in fact— They were looking forward to the covenant of grace all that time from Noah and uh, Moses, right? Noah, Abraham, Moses, David. They were looking forward to the covenant of grace, but they were not actually participating in it. And that, I think, is a big difference, uh, a big uh, contrast between the way they understand the history of redemption and the way we do we say the covenant of grace was really active in history, really being administered under types and shadows, that Abraham was really participating in it, and Moses was participating in it, and David was participating in it, and the prophets were, were administering it outwardly. So that, that's a big difference. Uh, but it, it leads to sometimes different ways of regarding our children. And um, as I say, there are some that talk the way we do, but there are others who talk in a way that I think is distinctly unhelpful. Um, covenant children... Ought to be regarded as members of the visible covenant community. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 that even the unbelieving and in the, what he's what he's getting at in 1 Corinthians 7 is, you know, let's say you have a believing woman, she's been converted but she's still married to an unbelieving man. And uh, Paul says don't divorce him, right? Uh, and here's why. He is because by virtue of his, of his relationship to you, he's holy. Not that he's saved, not that he's regenerated, but that he's not unclean. So he's using Old Testament ritual categories. Your unbelieving husband is not unclean. And let me prove it. Um, your child is holy. Your child is unclean, or is clean, ritually clean. Uh, he argues from that which he assumes to be unquestioned. And that is, if the child is holy, and of course we know that to be the case, then your husband is also holy, That, he, that meaning ritually clean. So you, you, you can't very well square this notion that my child is a viper in diapers and holy, right? And, uh, and, uh, and sort of ritually unclean. Um, so we're, we are to regard this child as a member of the visible covenant community. We pray for our child. We catechize our child. That's we instruct them in the Christian faith. We, we take them with us to church. I think we ought to keep them with us in church. I know that's hard. We did it. It can be done. Right, I, I wish people wouldn't. I, I wish we wouldn't send our kids out to the uh, to children's church. Um, I, I don't understand how we're blessing our children with the means of grace when we tell them, in effect, you're not really members of the covenant community. Now that you've been here for five or ten minutes, you have to leave, and then we'll pick you up after the service. But never be that as it may. Um, theoretically, we keep them with us in the covenant in the uh, you know the the covenant worship service as members of the covenant community. They've been the sign has been placed on them, and we we say to them, you were baptized. You know, we used to hold our children up so that they could see when there was a baptism. And we would say, "Now, right? Child, do you see this baptism going on? Yes. Well, the same thing was done to you. The name of Christ was put on you. Now, it's not magic, but you were visibly entered into the visible, right, external covenant community. And you were a part of this. And these promises are for you. And, and you not only... Uh, uh, should you believe them, you you must believe them. And then we would ask, do you believe? And, and so it's a different way of relating to children and a different way of regarding them, uh, I think raising them. And uh, we, we just expect them to believe. We're not looking for uh, a dramatic conversion. We're just expecting them to come to faith. And if after time they don't make profession of faith, then we'll deal with that. That's why we have church discipline right? And that gets us back to Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10.
0: Well, Ashley, so you, you had one question you wanted to ask. Um,
3: I can't even remember which one it was. To it out. Out
1: <laughs> I've talked you into oblivion.
3: Yeah, I'm like, I'm like, oh, okay. I, you know, I haven't had kids yet, so I'm still, you know, thinking through all this. But, okay, the, the other thing I wanted to ask, so we talked about dispensationalism, we talked about um, particular Baptists, and we, the other one we wanted to talk about was New Covenant Theology. Uh, I've heard you talk about this a little bit on the Reform podcast. I listened to the episode where you talked about this. That was, that was actually the first time I had ever heard of it when that episode came out. I was like, oh, I hadn't heard of NCT, but... So how does I mean does new covenant theology relate to covenant theology or like what what is it
1: in Well it does uh, it's um it's been a long time since I've done a lot of work on it but when I was reading it what what I found essentially was a way of explaining the history of redemption that gave people a reason to say that we're no longer under the Ten Commandments. And particularly, we're no longer under the Fourth Commandment, which is the Sabbath Commandment. So I think the point of the so-called New Covenant theology is to set up a system whereby you can say, well, I'm I'm Reformed, but I don't want to keep the Ten Commandments, or at least I don't want to say that we're under the Ten Commandments. Now, I can't imagine a proponent of the New Covenant theology saying, well, you know, I don't have to love the Lord with all my faculties and my neighbor as myself. And and I'm free to commit adultery, or or I'm free to commit idolatry, or something like that. So it really comes down to the Fourth Commandment. And uh, so there's that. And then I think they read redemptive history in such a way as to sort of facilitate the Baptist understanding of redemptive history. So I don't know any paedo-Baptist adherence to the so-called New Covenant theology. So it's really, uh, a, in my view, a kind of quasi-dispensational approach to reading the scriptures, you know their their understanding of Jeremiah 31, 31 through thirty four that we looked at earlier, it seems to me to be sort of quasi dispensational. but their general way of reading scripture is sort of quasi dispensational and doesn't really see the kind of continuity that we see, and it doesn't really account for the language that Paul uses to talk about the continuity of the Abrahamic covenant. So the, the answer to New Covenant theology is Abraham, the Abrahamic paradigm. He's the father of all who believe. And if I can just get evangelicals, Baptistic evangelicals of whatever kind, to accept that Abraham is their father, right, then I think things will come into place. I, I had a, a Baptist student some years ago. who was a really a, a very gentle soul and a thoughtful young man. And so as a kind of a thought experiment, every time I saw him, I said to him, his name was John, John. I will be a God to you and to your children after you. Every time I saw him without fail, I did that for about a year. And after about a year, and I saw him about five times a week, sometimes multiple times a day. And every time I saw him, I said, I will be a God to you and to your seed after you, or your children after you. And after about a year, he came to me and he said, you know, I think I'm a Pado baptist Uh, Because he hadn't really wrestled with Abraham. Honestly, I don't know Of a Baptist who really has gotten to grips with Abraham, who then doesn't come to me and say, you know, if we're Abraham's children, we're Abraham's children. If God said, I will be God to you and to your children after you, and if that promise is still in effect, if it's never been revoked, and of course it hasn't, Peter quotes it at Pentecost, then, you know, that has certain implications. And what I find is that people just don't want to think about it. So here I'm, I'm saying to everyone listening, I will be a God to you and to your children after you. You have to wrestle with that. You have to think about that. You have to account for that. You can't just ignore it because it's God's word. And it's not just a verse. It's paradigmatic. It's a way for understanding really all of of redemptive history.
0: I started listening to White Horse Inn and found out there were Protestants who baptized babies. And I, I mean, that was all new to me. <laughs> I, was, I was young. And... Um, and, and it was act, It was actually um, Acts 2, kind of, is when I, you know, partly realized, well, that and reading that book, um, Infant Baptism in the First Four Centuries, well, that made me think I need to consider this at
1: least. I, I remember very well struggling with the idea of, of baptizing infants. And, and you know, it, it was a gradual process. I had to think about, you know, the dividing wall being broken down, but really it was Abraham. Now, I had a lot of uh, biases against it. I thought, well, only liberals do it among Protestants, and Roman Catholics do it, and Anglicans, who I thought of sort of quasi-Roman Catholics, and the Greek Orthodox, I thought of sort of as Greek Roman Catholics. And I didn't want to be Greek. I didn't want to be Roman. I didn't want to be Anglican, and I didn't want to be a liberal Protestant. So everybody I knew that believed the Bible denied infant baptism. So that was a big obstacle. And it wasn't that there weren't Bible-believing, as you say, Protestant Protestants, Confessional Protestants, who uh, baptized infants. I just didn't know any, and so it didn't seem plausible. You know, I, I have conversations with people who agree with me about Abraham, but they've never seen, you know, a, a godly, faithful administration of infant baptism. So I, you know, <laughs> I've offered to come with a doll, and you know, and and just demonstrate for them. This is what we do. Right, and it's it's not magic. Uh, you know, if, I've offered to take people to a place where you can see, you know, godly, biblical infant baptism being uh, being um, administered or practiced. So, the if, if the listener is not familiar with it, uh, she needs to know that that this is a biblical practice. It's a historic Christian practice. What we experience in the United States and what we have experienced since the 19th century is something of an anomaly. This is probably the first time in the history of the church where you have a place where most people who believe the Bible are not actually practicing infant baptism, and so it creates this uh, what, what sociologists call plausibility structure. Uh, that is, that only only believers' baptism seems plausible because that's all we've ever seen, but. If we lived in any other time in the history of the Church, someone who said, well, no, you can't baptize your children. Only believers may be baptized. That person would have been regarded as crazy or a heretic because everybody who believed the Bible baptized their children. So we live in this sort of weird, exceptional time in a way that's really very new right? because all the Protestant reformers all baptized uh, covenant children. The Anabaptists were not Protestants, so that's important that the listener understand that. That's a whole other podcast. But the Anabaptists denied all the major Reformation doctrines. So you shouldn't think of them as sort of uh, sort of uh, radical Protestants. They weren't. They were actually opposed to the Reformation. So, uh, So that's important. But all the actual Protestant Reformers, they all baptized their children. And it wasn't, <coughs> excuse me, because they were still in the clutches of Roman Catholicism, and they didn't know any better, and they just couldn't get away from Rome. But but now we have. I've heard people say that. It's simply not true. They were familiar with all of the objections, and they considered the objections, and they rejected the objections, not because they were traditionalists, but because they were being faithful to Scripture.
0: Well, yeah, it took my husband a little longer because he grew up Lutheran, and so he kind of, well, his parents ended up in the. In Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, so very liberal, but he had still come, although his parents had been Wisconsin and Missouri Synod, and so when he kind of came out of that and was in kind of a Reformed Baptist Church, but it was very hard for him because it was a different view than what he grew up with, and mm-hmm. he had left that baptismal regeneration view yeah. and that isn't what we that isn't what we believe either, which
1: yeah, we we don't think uh, that the moment water is administered to a child, that necessarily that child is awakened from death to life. That was never true, right? Ishmael was not regenerated when he was circumcised, right? Uh, uh, Esau was not regenerated when he was circumcised. There were, so we've never believed in circum, uh, if I can say, circumcisional regeneration, and we've never believed in baptismal regeneration. Uh, that's really a medieval view of the sacraments. There's a Latin phrase for that ex opera operato. Uh, by the working it is worked. And that essentially turns the sacraments into magic. And the sacraments are not magic, they're signs and seals. So the signs were placed on Ishmael and the signs were placed on on, on uh, Esau, but the sign was also placed on Isaac, right and Jacob. So both those who believed, uh, those who are elect and uh, regenerated and believed, they received the sign, and those who didn't. And we put the sign on all, on everyone according to God's command and promise. And we trust the Lord to uh, work out His plan through and in the church to bring His elect to to faith. We don't know who that is. We, you know, we're not playing guess the elect. Even a Baptist, if they're honest, and and typically my Baptist conversation partners are honest about this. They don't know that when they baptize someone who's making a profession of faith that they really do believe. Only God knows that. So they have no more certainty about the person making profession than we do about the infant. So then the question really comes down, has God revoked his promise to Abraham? I will be a God to you and to your children. Put this sign on your child. Is that pattern done? And we say, no, that pattern is not done the pattern still enforced and it will be enforced until Jesus comes bodily visibly to bring uh history to a close.
3: So unless there was somewhere in scripture saying remove the children from the covenant we're going to keep the children in the co- like right like that's what you're saying is we don't we don't Yeah, exactly.
1: Well, and we see the opposite, right? We see the, Peter repeating the promise for the promises to you and to your children. And it's in the context of baptism and then we see household baptisms lydia for example her whole household everybody in that household was baptized apparently and you know we could argue about whether there were children in that in a particular household but typically if you look up that word for household if you look in the in the greek translation of the hebrew bible you will see that same word and you'll see the hebrew equivalent and you'll see infants in the household. If someone says there's no example of infant baptism in all of Scripture, I say, I beg to differ. 1 Corinthians 10. Paul says that all the Israelites that were led out of Egypt on the, through the Red Sea on dry ground, they were all baptized into Moses, and there were between a million and three million people. Now tell me there were no infants in a million. If you, come on. There's a million people in Kansas City. How many infants are there at any given time? Right? There are three million people in San Diego. There are thousands and thousands of of infants. Right? So out of this one to to three million people, there were thousands of infants. And Scripture says, the word of God says, not Scott Clark and not some crazy liberal and not some Roman Catholic. God's word says, First Corinthians chapter ten, they were baptized into Moses. And by the way, they got sprinkled, who got immersed. Every right, you know, Pharaoh and his armies. They got immersed. But that's a you know, that's a whole other discussion we want to talk about mode.
0: Thank you so much <laughs> for spending this this time with us. I on our resource, um, for those of you listening, you know, um on the website on the episode um page, I will link several things. Dr. Clark has a post. I think it's called something like a curriculum for those wrestling through covenant theology and infant baptism, something like that. And that that has, you know, several resources, including the Heidelcast series that I mentioned, I Will Be a God to You and Your Children, which is excellent also. And not just about infant baptism, it is about covenant theology. So I I strongly recommend that. Is there anything else that you would recommend? For those who are wanting to understand covenant theology and infant baptism,
1: there's a great introduction. And in fact, there's a post on the Heidel blog about uh, covering resources for people who are just discovering covenant theology. And uh, there's a book by Zach Keel, and Mike Brown, that introduces covenant theology, and I like that book very well. It's 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 brief. It has study questions. It's clear. It's simple. And so that's a great place to start. And then after that, if you want to keep going, Mike Horton has written an introduction to covenant theology, which I like quite well. It's a little more advanced, but um, so if you're just getting started, start with the Keel and Brown book, and then after that, go to the Horton volume, Introduction to Covenant Theology. And then there are lots of resources on the Heidel blog.
3: Yeah, my, my pastor just took us through the Zach Keel book in, in Sunday school. so Great. He said you were a professor of his. He just graduated from Westminster last year, so.
1: Well, who's your pastor?
3: Um, Matt Prather.
1: Oh, outstanding.
3: Yeah, Matt Prather and Chris Hartshorn are, all, they are also in my presbytery up here in Corona. Uh, so, yeah, but no, I can second that That book. That was super helpful for me, the Zach Kil book. I think it's called Sacred Bond.
1: That That's what it is, Sacred Bond. Available through... Uh, good books everywhere good bookstores everywhere <laughs>
3: okay i'd like to recommend um your podcast the heidelcast um that's been really helpful for me and what's your what's your most recent series you're doing i'm doing something now about um the attributes of god or something like that
1: i am yeah the the title of the series is i am that i am and uh, it's a, basically an introduction to the biblical and reformed doctrine of god so we talk about the trinity and the attributes of god the existence of god and and the and the language that we should use when we talk about god so we're about four three or four uh, episodes in i think i'm i'm actually uh, editing episode 4 so i hope to get that up soon
3: awesome well thank you so much for for coming on i think this will be really helpful for for our listeners
1: well thank you very much it's it's great to be with you
0: thank you we'll be right back And we're back. Ashley, that was such a great interview, wasn't it? Yeah,
3: it was. I think my brain, you know, feels a little full. It, it might explode <laughs> from that interview. I was, you know, as he was talking, trying to process what he was saying. But, yeah, that was that was wonderful.
0: Yeah, I'm going to have to re-listen and take notes this time. <laughs> yeah. There was a lot, of, a lot of great information. And I think with some of you had asked a really good question and, you know, the, he even brought up some things that I thought, oh, that I need to remember that. So I need to kind of listen and take take notes. And on our on our website, I am going to link things that were talked about. We talked about um, covenant theology is not replacement theology. I will link that. I will link the curriculum for those. I, I don't have the exact name in front of me, but those trying to understand covenant theology and infant baptism. And number 18 on that is, the Heidelcast series, I Will Be a God to You and Your Children. And then I'll also link the new series that um, you had mentioned on there. It's on the Attributes of God, right? Yeah. And I, I'd also like to recommend again,
3: the book by Zach Keel and Michael G. Brown called Sacred Bond. It's on Amazon. It's like eleven right. bucks. That book was so helpful and it's short. It's very readable. It doesn't feel like you know, extremely academic where it's not accessible.
0: So I'd really recommend that book again. And I, I would say probably also, I don't have that one, but I am going to get it and read it. I do have Michael Horton's Introducing Covenant Theology, and I will link both of those books because I know I know there's just a lot of questions and it's a lot to learn and to understand. Well, mm-hmm. Ashley, last week you and I both had kind of a brain brain freeze and forgot what our question of the week from the week before was, but I had to go back and listen to the episode uh-huh. and it was, what was the best sermon you ever heard?
3: The best sermon I ever heard. Oh, I wish I had an answer ready for that. I,
0: man, you answer first while I try to quickly. Think. Okay. You know, there is a couple sermons that, I mean, there are several that I still remember and think about years later, but there are two in particular that you know. I'm, I think, try, my kids were young at the time, so I'm thinking probably at least ten years ago. That the that I around the same time for both of them, and one of them was um, the OPC that we went to, um, one of the OPCs we attended, and the pastor did a sermon on the Ten Commandments and. Mm-hmm. He said some things in there that I had not really thought about before, and I still I still think back to some of those things. And the other is it was actually um, a pastor in a PCA down in Colorado Springs came and spoke at the OPC, and it was on um, Psalm 23. Okay. And it, that, again, was – something I still refer to. And I think both were, pro- I know my kids were young, so I'm thinking probably at least 10 years ago, because see, 10 years ago, my youngest would be four. I think my kids maybe were even younger than that. So off the mm-hmm. top of my head, that would be the ones that I would say.
3: Yeah, I'm thinking of ones I've heard very recently. Um, my pastor, uh, Matt Prather, he recently did a sermon on end times, which was mm-hmm. You know, I always feel like end times is a hard topic to tackle, and it, it seems very academic, but it was actually extremely encouraging, and you left just, I was just so encouraged. So that one I really liked. Um, our pastor that we, we were briefly at Anaheim Hills OPC before we planted our church now, and, or, or joined the church plant now, um, Chris Hartshorn, um, they're both on Sermon Audio. Um he did, a, he did um, a sermon on, I think it was the Sabbath that I thought was really good. We were just going through the law and going through, you know, Ten Commandments and stuff. And he spent one whole Sunday on the Sabbath talking about it. And that one was really, really great. But I, I can't think of like, you know, I don't know, like nothing like… One that you just…
0: Yeah, I asked in the group and… And boy, ladies were just, you know, they're linking all kinds. If you're in our group, you have to find that post because it was kind of fun to see, you know, different things. A lot of them were linking sermons to their own pastor or, you know, Mm -hmm. some pastor that no one's heard of. But that and and that's a wonderful thing. You know, it's not just we didn't just go to the mega, mega pastors. And you just made me think of a good series. And that was. Um, the OPC that we went to outside Chicago in Wheaton. Mm-hmm. And this is let's see, we've almost we've lived in Colorado almost 20 years. <laughs> it was almost 20 years. I think he was probably starting the series about right now. Uh-huh. And it was through the commandments. But we actually moved to Colorado so my husband could have Sundays off. And the, our last Sunday, he I think there was three. Sundays on the Sabbath. I know that sounds like a lot of sermons on the Sabbath, but <laughs> they were very good. And our last Sunday there was the last um, sermon on the Sabbath. But And I don't know that I ever even he- got to hear the rest of them. Back then we didn't have, you know, you didn't go sermon online and again. download yeah. sermons. But I think my husband might have the cassette tapes still, so yeah, I'm going to yeah. have to ask him. Right. And I need, I've got a lot of old... Cassette tapes, and uh-huh. I, you know they're they're in shoe. I probably like three three shoe boxes under my bed or somewhere like that. And I need you know I just don't want to let them go because they're things that aren't available online.
3: Yeah, what's a cassette? To, tape? I need to.
0: No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
3: yeah, no, I know what they are. <laughs> I
0: know. So yeah, actually, I have um because I started listening to the White Horse Inn in 1994. And so I have all these old white horse ends and the white horse end used to be an hour long and it used to be live. And the last half hour people would call with questions and there mm. wasn't a bunch of reformed podcasts. I mean, some radio stations had renewing your mind and, and then, um, there was a the white horse Inn. I'm not even sure as far as, ref- you know, there's Calvinistic stuff, but as far as reformed, I'm not sure what there was. And, but those old white horse ends were so good. And not available online, so I need I need to get the setup to transfer all of them digitally. Yeah. So I still have them. I forgot to ask our question of the week um, for next week, and I thought this would be this would be kind of fun since you're a teacher, Ashley. Mm-hmm. Who was your favorite teacher growing up, and why? So you can think and about why. that. Yep. I will.
3: I'll have an answer next week.
0: Okay. Great. Okay. So. Um, Check out all the resources on the website. If you don't understand covenant theology, listen to this episode, you still have questions. I especially highly recommend listening to the Heidelcast series, I Will Be a God to You and Your Children, looking and ordering the book that Ashley mentioned. We're going to link all of that on the website. And thank you for listening. Have a good night.